Um, right, this morning's reading is from Matthew 12, verses 38 to 41. The Sign of Jonah. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation ask for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. Father, we are reminded through your prophet Isaiah's words that your words does not return void, but accomplishes that which you desire, that it is divinely inspired and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that we are thoroughly equipped for every good work. We pray this morning that as Dan comes to speak to us, that you, your Holy Spirit will empower him to provide for us this morning the guidance for us to follow daily in applying your word in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning to you all. It's a joy to be here, share God's word with you today. Uh, so I wonder what kind of person you are. Would you call yourself a skeptic? Are you one of those people who uh, see it to believe it type of a person? I would imagine you, probably a lot of you are, especially in this day and age of um, online scams and fake news, right? Uh, what do you think of this particular headline? Goliath's skull found in the Holy Land. What does that make you think? Ooh, is that really, did that really happen? Well, skepticism is not necessarily a bad thing. We often think of skepticism as a bad thing, don't we? Like a negative attitude. But actually, uh, you can have a healthy skepticism which questions things uh, in order to discover whether something's true or not. So it can be a good thing, and it can help you reach that logical decision. Is it true? Well, in this case, it was a hoax. It was discovered that this was an absolute hoax uh, Nothing of Goliath's remains has ever been discovered. And uh, <clears throat> one of the reasons I think that, that, that came to light was the fact that they were even claiming that it was found in the Valley of Elah where the battle took place. Whereas the Bible actually tells us that David took uh, Goliath's head to Jerusalem. Okay, so that in itself disproves that. So is it wrong to question uh, whether Christ was who he claimed to be? It's a good question. It's something that... The religious elite of the day, they uh, were obviously questioning Christ's authority. So is it wrong to do that? Well, in their case, yes, because they had undeniable evidence to prove that Christ truly was who he said he was. 
Whereas for you and I, we don't get to be eyewitnesses of what Jesus did. So we have to make our minds up, often based off of evidences. Now, I don't know if you are a skeptic today, I would highly recommend this book called Jesus for Skeptics, uh, written by Michael Green. It's an excellent resource, uh, and it gives you lots and lots of food for thought if you're struggling with some of the, maybe the concepts out there in the Bible that Jesus really is who he said he is, or maybe his resurrection, whatever it might be, there's some wonderful evidences in there. Now, the thing is that these guys who came to Jesus, they weren't skeptics, they were denialists. They, they, in the face of all that Jesus had already done, they were denying that Jesus was who he said he was. They were bigots, they were biased, their minds had been made up. Have you ever met people like that? It doesn't matter what your line of reasoning or argument might be to do with creation or to do with the resurrection, whatever it might be. There are some people out there who simply won't believe no matter what. They were in that category. Now, they demanded a miracle or some kind of sign from Jesus. It always puzzled me why they asked that question. You think about what Jesus already had done in the, the sight of them. No doubt they had seen a number of his miracles. What was it that they wanted him to do? You know what? They were, they were so made up their minds that even if had he rent the very heavens, called fire down from heaven, uh, or done some other amazing sign, they still wouldn't have believed. Their minds were made up. Jesus had proved his authority without question, hadn't he? I wonder if you were Jesus and you'd been asked that question, what would you have done? I wonder what I, have, what I would have done. We as humans, we love to prove ourselves, don't we? If somebody questions us, we want to prove categorically that we're in the right. But Jesus was made of different stuff, wasn't he? And he wasn't going to perform cheap tricks for the crowd to satisfy their curiosity. We get that from the time when he was in the wilderness with Satan. And Satan also said, jump off the pinnacle of the temple, Jesus. Prove that you are the Son of God. And Jesus said, no. He wasn't there to satisfy the crowd with cheap tricks. In fact, when you read through the Gospels, many of Jesus' miracles were done in response to a specific need. People asking him, Lord, help me in this instance in my life. And it wasn't necessarily just to prove who he was. In fact, his miracles confirmed him to be the Son of God. But actually, it was in obeying his words that brought eternal life. Now, this is a very interesting point here and concept. Think about what Jesus said here in John 5, verse 24. He said, I tell you the truth. Those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they've already passed from death into life. Jesus' words are sufficient for people to believe in him. Okay, that's the point that Jesus is making. And if you think about what the Gospels reveal to us, there are a number of times when Jesus healed somebody and then forbade that person to, uh, to tell other people about what he'd done. And that always puzzled me as well. Like, surely, Jesus, don't you want more people to know what you've done? And the truth was that Jesus warned them not to reveal who he was because it wasn't on the evidence of his miracles, but on his words that he, that he wanted people to respond to. In his words are the power 
to believe. Look at this verse from Romans chapter 1, verse 16. The Apostle Paul writing, saying, I'm not ashamed of this good news about Christ. Why? Because it is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentiles. In the very words of God is the power to believe. It's the preached word of Christ that produces faith in somebody's soul. And that's what people need to hear. It's not about the miracles, it's about his words that are so important. And when we were in Papua New Guinea, it reminds me that at time, from time to time we'd hear that there's a miracle worker appeared in the, in the area. Now, we never went out to, to go and see what this miracle worker was all about, but people would flock in their droves to go and check out this miracle worker. For them, it was all about the experience, not about the words, about the experience. And this is why I believe that Jesus called them adulterous. He said an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Why adulterous? It sounds very harsh, doesn't it? Well, the truth is that they didn't love Jesus for, for who he was. They loved Jesus, if you like, or they followed Jesus for what he could do for them, either in terms of healing, a miracle, or simply the fact that he would provide food for them on more than one occasion. In a sense, they were adulterers because they loved the gift, not the giver. And people still... I like that today, aren't they? There are a lot of people who want to follow Jesus in some respect or another because they want to see the signs, the miracles. They want to experience uh, spiritual encounters. Or there's other people that they say, I want to follow Jesus because they want the benefits. They want the, the spouse. They want the good marriage or the children or the wealth or the job or even eternal security. People have all kinds of reasons for wanting to follow Jesus, but what they want is the gift and not the giver. And spiritual adultery is loving the gifts rather than the giver. I don't know if you've ever been on holiday and you've had one of those timeshare representatives try and sell you a timeshare. Have you ever had that experience? Man, they can't do enough for you, can they? They're super nice. They'll, they'll give you free things. Uh, they maybe even give you food, whatever. It seems like uh, there, there's nothing that they won't do for you until the moment comes when they realize you don't want to buy that timeshare from them. And then what are they like? They can't get rid of you quick enough, can they? And people are like that with Jesus. They want him for his benefits, but they don't want him for who he is, the savior of the world. So think about Jesus's gracious response. He said the only sign... The only sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he spells it out for them. Just as Jonah was inside the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so I, the Son of Man, will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. You can't get much clearer than that, that he was pointing, of course, to the resurrection. The sign of Jonah. What does Jesus actually mean by the only sign? I will give them. Of course, he did many signs and wonders after this, didn't he? Some of them were there when he raised Lazarus from the grave. My word, you can't get a much more uh, overt sign than that, can you? 
But his resurrection would prove that he was truly the Messiah, the promised saviour, that the Old Testament saints had been looking for for generations and ages. Now think about it. No other prophet ever came back from the dead, did they? All the other prophets, Moses, Abraham, the whole lot of them, they died, buried, and that was it. You didn't see them again, did they? They didn't see them again. The Jewish people waited expectantly for the resurrection, that final day to come, and Jesus was going to be the sign of that. They were looking to that, and Jesus would be the fulfillment of it. Now, if you looked into evidences of the resurrection, uh, it's fascinating to me to see that our faith as Christians, we can truly stand upon because of the overwhelming evidence. There was one British lawyer, a guy called Sir Edward Clarke, and he remarked this. He said, as a lawyer, I've made a prolonged study of the evidences for the events of the first Easter day. To me, the evidence is conclusive, and over and over again, in the High Court, I've secured the verdict on evidence not nearly so compelling. And other people share his conclusions. If you ever read the book or heard of Lee Strobel, he was a former journalist with the Chicago Tribune newspaper. Now, when his wife became a Christian, he made it his personal ambition to try and dissuade her from her new faith by disproving Christianity, particularly disproving the resurrection. And this is what he said. I sat down with all the evidence I'd collected over this almost two-year investigation, and I reviewed it all and wrote down notes to summarize it and get my arms around it, because you know a good jury reaches a verdict and the evidence was in. I had plenty of evidence. I needed to reach a verdict. And so I analyzed it all anew, and then I sat back and, and I said, well, wait a second, in light of the avalanche of evidence that points so powerfully towards the truth of Christianity, I realized it would take more faith, listen to this, to maintain my atheism than to become a Christian. In other words, the scales just tip decisively in the direction of Christianity being true. Now, that's uh, a wonderful assurance, isn't it, for us as Christians, that it's not pie in the sky when you die, but as they say, it's steak on a plate while you wait. The resurrection sets Christianity apart from all other religions, doesn't it? Because if you can dismiss the resurrection, then the whole of Christianity comes tumbling down like um, a house of cards. So the resurrection of Jesus, or the sign of Jonah, as Jesus referred to it there, would be so compelling that it would turn Palestine and the whole of the Roman Empire upside down. It's incredible, isn't it? To think that, that these guys, these terrified followers of Jesus after, after his death, were so convinced by what they saw that they were willing to go through terrible persecution and suffering and, and even martyrdom, proclaiming that they'd seen the risen Lord Jesus. Now, if you think about it, most people who propagate um, some kind of lie, they do so either to gain wealth, power, or prestige, don't they? Now, you think about the, the early disciples, what did they have to gain through propagating this so-called lie? Nothing except suffering and death. Therefore, it must have been true. So where are you today? Are you skeptical about Jesus' resurrection? What's it going to take to convince you? Or maybe you might term yourself as an agnostic. I don't know whether there's anyone out there, maybe in cyberspace as well, who are watching 
call themselves an agnostic. Sometimes people use that term, simply means, I don't know. But many, very often people aren't even willing to pursue the evidence and look objectively at it. And you know, Satan's quite happy with that, isn't he? A lot of people are just distracted by the world in which they live, by the things that they're doing. And Satan's quite happy keeping people distracted. In fact, it's true that more people go to hell because of distraction than unbelief. It's keeping people busy, going through the motions of life. But if Jesus truly is the Son of God, raised from the dead and will judge the living and the dead, then Jesus Christ is your only hope. This is what the writer of Hebrews writes. He says, so then we must pay all the closer attention to what we've heard in case we drift away from it. You see, if the word which was spoken through angels was reliable, with appropriate and just punishments every time anyone broke it or disobeyed it, how shall we escape if we ignore a rescue as great as this? Very powerful question. There is no escape if we ignore this great rescue. And so Jesus then teaches them a history lesson in response to their demand for a sign. And he said the people of Nineveh will stand up against this generation on judgment day and condemn it. What a shocking statement that must have been for them. These guys were the religious elite, okay? They were the pastors, they were the bishops, if you like, of the day. They thought they were better than everybody else. They were definitely more religious. They had the law of Moses. They had the patriarch. They had the history. They had God. They had the temple. They thought they were so much more righteous. And yet Jesus says, no, the pagan nation of Gentiles, these Ninevites, are going to stand up and condemn you. Man, that must have been a punch between the eyes for them. And the truth is that Scripture, one of the principles in Scripture, tells us that much is going to be required from those who've received more. The more truth and more light you have, the more that will be required of you by God at the judgment. That brings me to this question. Will there be levels of judgment? There's an interesting couple of verses in Luke chapter 12, verses 47 and 48. Jesus was telling one of his parables, and he said, A servant who knows what his master wants, but isn't prepared, and doesn't carry out those instructions, will be severely punished. But someone who does not know, and then does something wrong, will be punished only lightly. When someone has been given much, much will be required in return. And when someone has been entrusted with much, even more will be required. They're sobering words, aren't they? So what about those people who've never heard? Sometimes we get that question asked. Will they be condemned? What does the Bible have to say about them? Well, if you read Romans chapter 1, Paul spells it out very clearly that the answer is yes. Why? Well, it's written right here. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see God's invisible attributes or qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. So yeah, even those people on the 
those far-flung areas of the globe who've never heard of Jesus will be judged on the light that they have, the truth that has been revealed to them through creation and through their consciences. That's what Paul says in Romans 1. But those who hear the truth and still refuse to repent, their judgment will be all the more weightier. One commentator writes, it's possible to hear and understand and accept a portion of Jesus' message but still not be saved. Now, guys, I'm not trying to call into question our salvation here, but I do want us to think carefully about where we stand. You see, Jesus tells the story of three servants who were given equal shares of money, and they all had to invest them. Two of them invested well, and the third one buried the money in the ground and gave it back to the master when he returned. And what did Jesus say or what did the master say about that servant he said you wicked servant they're strong words aren't they what was so wicked about what he did didn't seem that wicked to you and i but the truth was he refused to invest what he had for the master in other words he didn't love his master he couldn't care less about living for him he just wanted to live his own life Jesus warns his casual listeners that following him and receiving his salvation requires more than picking and choosing what we want to believe. So let's define repentance, because Jesus said that you guys are going to be are going to be condemned because someone or something greater than Jonah has come and you refuse to repent. So repentance, what it isn't, is not praying a prayer. It's not putting your hand up in response. It's not getting baptized. It's not going to church and it's not believing a set of creeds. Because the Bible tells us that even the demons believe and they tremble. Repentance is agreeing with God that you're a sinner and you need a savior. It means turning away from sin. And it means following Jesus wherever he leads. It means allowing Jesus to be your king. Now, Jesus isn't our co-pilot. You may have heard that before. You know, Jesus is my co-pilot. But no, Jesus isn't your co-pilot. Jesus should be taking the wheel of the car. He should be the driver. You should be the, the one sitting next to him. That's what it means. Repentance is making Jesus king of your life. And you know, I think repentance is left out a lot today in a lot of preaching uh, we, we tell people to, to believe, and that's good, and we need to tell them that. But there's also this aspect of repentance, and it's, it's there in the New Testament again and again as you read through what happened in the book of Acts. It was always repent and believe. It was turn away from your sin. Accept the truth of what God is telling you about you. And I feel today that we have this, what I would term an easy believism. It's like put your hand up for Jesus. A prayer but no commitment to turn from your sin and follow Christ wherever he leads. James chapter 3, he says it's possible to say the right things, but live a life contrary to the truth that you've heard. So is your faith real or is it counterfeit? We all need to ask ourselves that question. Who will stand up on the day of judgment against you and condemn you for the truth you've heard? but not truly repented? It's a sobering question indeed. 
So Jesus' indictment of the religious leaders, he said someone or something greater than Jonah is here, but you refuse to repent. Well, if you're a footballing fan, what's the answer to that conundrum? Who's the greatest, Messi or Ronaldo? We're not going to do a show of hands. We don't want any fighting going on. But have you ever failed to recognize uh, maybe an important person or a famous person just simply because you don't know who they are? Well, I heard of a a guy who was in first class on a flight um, across the Atlantic, sat next to a a pretty lady, and they got chatting. She told him that she was in the the, uh, filming industry, and they got into a normal conversation. He had no clue who she was until later on he was told that he was sitting next to Julia Roberts on the plane. Well, these guys, they missed the most important person in the whole of history, didn't they? They missed Jesus. He was there in front of their eyes. Can you imagine it? And they missed him. So Jesus compares himself with Jonah. Now, if I was comparing myself with prophets from the past, Jonah wouldn't have been on my list. It would have been Elijah or Moses, right? I mean, these guys were... uh, No, they did some Champions League-level miracles, didn't they? You know, you think about the, the ten plagues in Egypt... Uh, You think about calling fire down in front of the prophets of Baal. These guys were the real deal, weren't they? So why did Jesus compare himself with Jonah? Well, of course, we have uh, the the whole analogy of the resurrection from being swallowed by the fish and then vomited out again three days later. But Jonah also accomplished something that none of the other prophets in the Old Testament actually did. And you think about this for a minute. Five words of preaching from Jonah's mouth produced repentance in the hearts of 120,000 people in the city of Nineveh. What other prophet in the Old Testament had accomplished such a great feat as that? And this was no ordinary city, was it? This was the city of Nineveh, the capital of uh, the Assyrian Empire, the most powerful and dominant force in the world at the time. And this city also was infamous for its cruelty and its paganism. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but I I get the impression that he probably became a bit of a hero when he returned back to Israel and told his people what had happened there in Nineveh. Nineveh, of course, was the great enemy of Israel, and perhaps through their repentance, they had been somewhat subdued in their attempts to try and uh, take over more of the world. Maybe other nations too heard of their repentance and thought, my word, we're grateful for that. It means that we get a bit of a let off now from their attacks, perhaps. I don't know, but I'm I'm sure uh, he got a bit of a standing ovation when he returned back when they heard what he had done. So how could Jesus say he's greater than Jonah? Well, honestly, uh, comparing Jonah to Jesus is like Jesus is the sun and Jonah's the candle. Man, you really can't hold a candle to Jesus, can you? You think about it, right? Greater in his obedience. Now, uh, was Jonah known for his obedience? No, quite the opposite. He was known for his disobedience. He ran away, didn't he? The very first ship he could take as far away as he could go, that was Jonah's response to God's obedience. He'd rather die than go to Nineveh. 
And it actually took a a near-death experience in God's relentless pursuit of him uh, to get him to actually obey what God said. He was the reluctant prophet, wasn't he? Consider what Jesus did. Think about these words of Christ. Uh, Not only did Jesus come in obedience from heaven to earth, but when he was ministering on this earth, he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus drew nourishment from doing the Father's will. And it wasn't for Jesus a nine-to-five job. It wasn't compartmentalizing his life into, uh, you know, God time and me time, like I guess many of us do, but Jesus' every breath, his every thought, was filled with a desire to please his Father. What about greater in mercy? What was Jonah's mercy like? I tell you what, he wasn't known for his mercy either, was he? You think about him, he, all he cared about was the destruction of the Assyrians. He sat down, we, we learned, uh, the last few weeks, built a shelter to watch the city, hoping that God would relent and destroy it. That was Jonah's mercy, wasn't it? He was counting on God to lay waste to Nineveh. And because God didn't, he got angry. Angry enough to die, he actually said to God. Now, I fear that there's a bit of Jonah in all of us, isn't there? At times, we can look around us and think quite smugly about ourselves. I'm pretty righteous. I'm a good person. We look at the wicked people who live around us, and we take the moral high ground. But the truth is that we all deserve God's judgment, don't we? Because our rebellion and our waywardness If you think you're kind of a righteous person, then imagine all your thought life, your deepest, darkest secrets were projected on a big screen like this one for all to see. I wonder how righteous you'd feel then. I I reckon you'd probably run out of the room as fast as you can, and so would I if mine were put up there. Because the truth is, we all need to be saved. Even Jonah needed to be saved, and he'd forgotten that. And the good news is this. that most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Think about that. The good news is summed up in Jesus in my place. Just as Jonah was thrown into the raging sea so that the sailors could be saved from drowning, Jesus went to the cross for me, took my place. This is incredible that God showed his great love for us while we were still sinners. Imagine a terrorist blew your family up. And in the court proceedings, you stood up in court and said, I will take the place of that guy. I will take his prison sentence. I'll spend the rest of my life behind bars paying his debt. And not only that, actually... That criminal, he can have the keys to my car, he can have my house, my retirement plan, and all my possessions. Who on earth would ever do that? No one would they. And that's the point that Paul's making here, that Jesus did that for you and I through the cross. That we're given reconciliation and forgiveness and a place in his kingdom. Isn't that incredible? All right. Coming to an end here. Greater in mission. Uh, Jonah's mission took him to a, 
a vast city of 120,000 people, but Jesus came to save the whole world, didn't he? No one was to be left out. Every tribe, tongue, and nation is in his game plan of salvation. And I love that. No one's too small or insignificant. Jesus said, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And in Revelation 5, 9, he said, they sang a new song. They said, you're worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Praise him, he didn't come to save just the religious elite or the powerful or the wealthy because most of us are not in that category. He came to seek and to save those who are lost. Praise his name for that. And he also affected a greater movement. Uh, history records that the repentance of Nineveh was short-lived. Within 150 years, Nineveh was overthrown and disappeared into the dust. But Jesus, the Galilean peasant began a movement that would sweep across the globe transforming communities uh, reconciling enemies ending slavery poverty and exploitation the fires of persecution couldn't stamp it out could they today more than a billion people profess to follow jesus yes there's a decline of christianity in the west but countries in asia and africa there's an explosion isn't there of people turning to Jesus, and the Bible is still the world's best-selling book. But what about him in his person? What a shock on judgment day for those people who rejected Jesus, only to discover that he truly is the Messiah they were looking for, the mighty descendant of David. This is what Paul the Apostle wrote. He was a skeptic. In fact, he was an out and outright denier of Jesus in the resurrection and he wrote these words Christ is the visible image of the invisible God he existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation for through him God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth he made the things we can see and the things we can't such as thrones kingdoms rulers and authorities in the unseen world Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. The greatness of Christ. We can't even begin to wrap our minds around it. And I don't even have time to expound on how Jesus is greater in his patience, uh, his holiness, his righteousness, his wisdom, and his power. So what does that mean for you and I today? Well, if you were there watching the king's coronation, there were three responses to this. Uh, the first one was the Not My King movement. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands here. Were there anyone part of that movement? Not My King was the first response, wasn't it? Uh, the second, I'm going to go back to that one. The second response was to call him king, but during the Pledge of Allegiance... Those, there are a great number of people who never made that pledge. They were quite happy to say King Charles is king, but not to make the Pledge of Allegiance. Again, I'm not going to ask for any hands up here if you did or you didn't. But the third group of people were those that made the Pledge of Allegiance. They called Charles their king. And this is what they said on that day, on the coronation day. I swear that I will pay true allegiance to your majesty 
and to your heirs and successors according to law. So help me God. So those three categories of people, which one do you fall in, into when it comes to your relationship with Christ? Are you a skeptic, not willing to follow the evidence and say, he's not my king, in effect? But the truth is, he is your king, whether you accept him or not. Just as Charles is king over the UK, whether we like it or not. Who will stand up on judgment day against you? Or are you one of those people that calls him king, but you're not willing to take the Pledge of Allegiance? Are you indifferent to the claims of Christ? Do you say he's king, but your life reflects differently? Or are you one of those people who embraces Jesus? Is he, as this poster says, is he your God, your king, and so on? Do you swear allegiance to him and to him alone? Because Jesus doesn't ask for a part of you. This is the truth of it. You know, a little bit of your time, a little bit of your money, a little bit of who you are. No, he asks for it all. That's the response. And I think sometimes we treat Jesus like either um, we write a, a, or if we give somebody a gift card, you know, it has a limit on it, doesn't it? It might be 50 pound, it might be whatever. And it has a limit. Rather than giving him a blank check and saying, Jesus, if you know what a check is, you guys out there who uh, maybe haven't banked with a check for a long time, writing a blank check means you can take out whatever amount you like. Gift card says, Jesus, you can have this much in my life. Those guys missed the most important person in the whole of history. And for that, they will be condemned by the pagan people of Nineveh. Today, we get to make that choice based off wonderful uh, uh, evidences that we can, that cannot be disproved that Jesus truly is alive. And he calls us today into fellowship, into this new life, into surrender. And that's the choice we have today. And I will leave that with you. But I pray that each of us will make Jesus my life, my all, my everything. Amen. Amen.